everyone and welcome to the podcast of English composer Andrew Downs. My name is Paula Downs, I'm Andrew's younger daughter and on today's show I'm delighted to introduce you to Martin Riley, composer, performer, music director, mentor and student at the Birmingham Conservatoire in the late 80s, early 90s when Andrew Downs was setting up his School of Composition and Creative Studies. Martin Riley was born in Nottingham, where he was taught by his mother to read music from a very early age. After later being left a piano by a neighbour at seven years old, Martin was given lessons. Formal music training began some years later at Clarendon College, Nottingham, and then at the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire, where he later was appointed as a visiting lecturer in music and composition at only 23. Martin's career has ranged from touring with classical Brit Award winners Blake, performing live on BBC Radio 2 on Terry Wogan's show and BBC London Radio for Gabby Roslin, to composing for the Moscow Symphony and Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestras, from arranging and composing music for the Southern Symphonia, composer-in-residence, to playing keyboards with Roger Daltrey and Alice Cooper. Over the years, he has garnered widespread recognition for his work. As a freelance composer, songwriter, pianist, he has provided creative input for artists such as The Charlatans, number one album Telling Stories, Deep Purple, Hayley Westenra, All Angels, The Soldiers and various major and independent recording companies. Recently, Martin has appeared with Susan Boyle in her DVDs and the TV advert promoting her latest album, Someone to Watch Over Me, and recently finished touring with Il Devo and Catherine Jenkins in the UK and Ireland part of the 2013 World Tour. He is in demand as a session artist and composer and has composed and worked on ads for TK Maxx TV ad campaign 2013 featuring Maverick Sabre, Rocket Music Universal. He is also working on a much-anticipated solo piano album a concerto for violin and orchestra, another couple of original musicals and some huge projects that involve world-scale performances that will make a genuine difference to the people of the world. More to be announced on this soon. In theatre, Martin has been composer, arranger and musical director for the Birmingham Repertory Theatre's 2014-15 Christmas show The BFG by Roald Dahl musical director-conductor on the Royal Shakespeare Company's The Taming of the Shrew and the Birmingham Reps' The Pied Piper. He has also composed original music, orchestrated, performed and MD'd for many other theatre shows and musicals in theatres all over the UK. This includes The Elvis Years, the touring version of Jailhouse Rock from London's West End, Buddy Holly, a spin-off from the West End hit Buddy the Musical, and united on a Wednesday night at the Crucible Theatre Sheffield. He has also composed original musicals such as Cobra Man of Steel in association with Thomas de Kaiser, which was premiered at the Alexandra Theatre Birmingham, and a country credit crunch in association with playwright Adrian Penketh, which had concert performances at the Soho Theatre London. Martin passionately believes in education through music, and has taught literally thousands of people from ages 4 to 84 all over the UK and at the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire. 
In 2013, he has been working with the London College of Music and Ealing Youth Orchestras as an arranger and orchestrator for the sensational new band Kooky to great acclaim. Other projects include the National In Harmony Music Campaign to help primary school children develop their musical potential and a global gathering where the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic performed Martin's work Eden and Then the Rain to 13,000 pupils from local schools. You can find out more at martinreilly.info. In 1989, Andrew Dance had his Centenary Fire Dances premiered at Cannon Hill Park as part of the Centenary Celebrations of Birmingham. The work was accompanied by fireworks and there were about 20,000 people in the audience. Martin Riley performed in a subsequent performance of this work in Cannon Hill Park in 1991 with the Birmingham Conservatoire's Paradise Sinfonietta under William Joss. He was performing the part of the tubular bells as part of the gigantic percussion section of this piece. Here are Martin's memories of performing in this piece. Oh, well, that was just amazing because that concert was incredible. Every one of us, I think there was 14 percussionists in it or 13. So Andrew says, what do you want to be in this? I said, well, he says, you can be anything you want. I've used everything in the percussion. I was like, all right, I want to be tubular bells because I like <laughs> the tubular bells when I was a kid, right? I'll be the tubular bells player. Oh, that's going to be quite tough. I said, no, no, I'll do it. I'll learn it. It'll be great. So I was tubular bells in that. I've got those James Cooper, I think was bass drum. And Will Joss, who was someone I really looked up to, was from Nottingham as well. I went to Clarendon and it was just a light. It gave me a lot of inspiration, that guy. He was the conductor. And what did we play at the beginning of that concert? Mars, the bringer of war. Oh. And he introduced it. We had 25,000 watching. Where were we? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it was just brilliant. And he goes, Mars, the bringer of war. And we all went, whoa, and everyone was, whoo, in the crowd. And then, and it was great. And then we come to the finale, which is your dad's piece, and all the fireworks are going to go off. It was incredible, actually. And what I really loved was that your dad had said to me when he was writing this piece of music what all the different rhythms meant. <laughs> He's put all these rude words into the, uh, do you know the story? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah, well, I won't repeat it. <laughs> but it was great. Uh, it was just fun. I knew them all. There's all these things. And I can remember my tune because I had to memorize it. That's what I had to play. And that was part of it. It was just great, you know, and I was so thrilled to play. But I thought, there's no way I can look at the music, look at the tuba bells, and look at the conductor. It was impossible. I mean, it really is, because I can't, it, like a piano, I can feel where the keys are, but I can't feel these, I'm using a hammer. But it was great how it all came together, how all the percussion fit together, and we were vital to the sound of it. Yeah. So yeah, I, was, I think everybody was absolutely thrilled to be playing in that piece of music. We're all excited by it, mm -hmm. and I think that's really important. You know, music is exciting. When it's good, it can be sad, it can be every emotion, every kind of emotion there is can be in music. But that one, it was all exciting, and it was energy, and the, yeah. you know, playing with this energy. Oh, it was just great. And my bit came in quite towards the end, you know, obviously it was smacking the tubular bells and I was just waiting for that. And there was this kind of rhythm to fire dancers. Everything had a rhythm and it would all come and build up. And it was entertaining. You see, it was written for everybody. It wasn't written for an academic echo chamber, which is what a lot of music is, which just makes me sad. For me, music's got to get out there. I believe that anyway, but that's been pushed as well from your dad, whose music's for everybody. You can listen to it. You don't have to know everything about 12-tone systems and stuff like that. 
like that. You don't have to know all this stuff. You just have to listen to the music and let it grab you. That's what music should do. Here is the last movement of Andrew Downs' centenary fire dances performed by the Birmingham Conservatoire Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Jonathan Del Mar. You can listen to this whole work at andrewdowns.com where you can also purchase the CD, MP3 and WAV files as well as the sheet music and you can read the blog of Cynthia Downs, Andrew Downs' wife and publisher about the premiere of this piece and subsequent performances.
Can you tell us about the piece that you've sent me of your own? Yeah, you said something that's got echoes of your dad within it. Well, it's probably my most popular piece. The Eden and then the Rain piece that I wrote. Yeah, that's full on orchestra. Big, loud, and there's a lot in it. And there's bits of the rain falling down and stuff using crotals. Crotals are one of my favourite percussion instruments. It was performed by the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra. I was really lucky there. There was a guy called Alistair Malloy, who's their percussionist. And he was doing an education project, a world gathering. So that's terrible up my street and the your dad's street and it was all about bringing the world all together in a concert in liverpool i like liverpool i don't know how we got talking i know alistair through a lady called helen fitzgerald who's been fixing gigs for years for students at the conservatoire and i'm one of them we still do work together and uh, it was through her that i met alistair malloy and alistair malloy oh i think we did this lord of the dance thing someone else playing the piano in that you anyway, know i don't know how we got talking about it but i said i've got a piece that might be suitable for that it was written for the eden project originally it was performed at the eden project with an orchestra called the Bath Philharmonia that had all been put together and I was commissioned to write it for the grand sum of 100 quid which is nothing but I thought well I'm going to do it anyway and like a lot of these arrangements it all happened in a pub over a pint and the conductor said to me could you do it and I said what's it for I said it's the Eden Project in Cornwall well I love Cornwall I intend to live there one day um, so I was like okay Eden E-D-E-N so da 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 E-D-E-N, the N's a G. That's it. Well, that's the tune. So it's in his thoughts me. It's in my head. Put the pine out. He does. He goes, da 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 yeah i've got the tune that's it we sorted i'll write that for you when does it need to be done and it just seems to be the case that all these things need to be done in two weeks all right two weeks for that I'm like, okay this is going to be a bit tough so anyway i wrote it and uh, it's got the celtic rhythms in it and stuff and it's got percussion it's got the bass drum so there's a little bit of your dad in that i would say and it has a kind of celtic influence definitely and i love the kind of feel of cornwall being a celtic land and all of that i did one of those dna tests and i've got a bit of that in me somewhere also a lot of viking apparently because mm-hmm. nottingham people were vikings it certainly hits home with me the whole cornish thing it's magical so i wanted to put a bit of that in there so the piece has the edn theme edeg it also has the cornish rhythms then i thought right the world thing it well the eden project it has these biomes with all the rainforest growing in them so i want to show that so i use the five octave marimba so rhythm and percussion is really important and then i like putting tunes over the top of each other so you've got like and then the trombones all at the same time and then an augmented tune underneath it doing that only twice as long that's something i probably would have done in my first year with your dad i think and it was for the people so i write this huge thing anyway in the eden project version the original version it was presented by jenny agata so she's one of the railway children and i got chatting to her and oh it's just amazing to meet these superstar people she introduced this thing and she had to sit on the stage now i was playing piano in the orchestra right thinking oh my god you know i've got a sight read this okay yeah it's on one of those mobile stages and it's got the big kind of speakers at the side and it's going to be blasted out to thousands of people Fowler cornwall's turned up to this but for my piece i just said could we make it at a point where i can run off stage because i want to listen to it from the front i'm not going to be conducting it the conductor asked me to write it so he can be conducting it his name is Jason Thornton and so I ran out around the front and it started yeah it was great Jenny Agata does this thing about Eden and the trees and this 
pieces reflecting all of this. Although she'd never heard it. I don't know if she'd even had anything off me, you know, I don't know. But anyway, she talked about it and then she sat at the side of the stage. She didn't have time to leave the stage. So I watched her face as it went on. <laughs> and it was a picture and she was like you could see her kind of welled up with emotion like amazed by it really. and it did sound i have to say it sounded blooming brilliant oh. <laughs> that was really tough to hear it come out of these big speakers just like fire dancers have done you know they have to like you can't just have a natural orchestra you have to have it mic'd up big mm. job so that was when that started and then i had a very rough recording of it that was just taken live and i played that to alistair malloy and he says yes this will be great for a, for the royal philharmonic orchestra at, oh. at liverpool and i was like this is great so, so yeah. they, and then they recorded it. I didn't know they was going to record it I and then it. it got recorded and it was performed to about 13,000 kids in Liverpool all kids in Liverpool went along and I was dead chuffed so I would say that that piece you can put the dots together there's a bit of your dad in there there's a bit of all the teachers really but of course there's myself and it's yes. the, but you kind of come through people put drops of paint on you as you're growing through music college and you kind of start to get coloured in the way you think about things Here is Martin Riley's Eden and Then the Rain performed by the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra.
How did you get into music in the first place and when did you start composing? My mum was very musical, that side of the family is, and my dad used to sing in the bath. They both died, unfortunately. At the time I went to conservatoire, they were both alive. My dad was a poet, so I always think I get the words and stuff off him. But going into the music bit, which was first, mum was always tinkling away. Well, actually, ironically, they got rid of a piano to make room for me when I was born, apparently. And <laughs> it, was, it was at the top of the garden. They set it on fire in a bonfire or something. Uh, I was born on November the 2nd, and if I'd been born on November the 5th, my dad said it would have been me on the fire, which wasn't very kind of him, but anyway. Uh, so, so it went out three days after I was born. Anyway, Mum got this like little Bon Tempe organ thing. She used to play that, and I used to listen, and I was always fascinated by music. Oh, and she bought me a little toy accordion that was forever breaking, and she was ever fixing it, and I tried to play that, and little bits, little musical instruments and stuff. I had some bongos from Mexico, which was so exotic and amazing. I remember it really well. I don't know what happened to them. But we're quite a musical house. So then mum added the Bon Tempe organ. And one day she'd been trying to teach me how to read music. You know, I could barely spell when I was about four or five. <laughs> so I think that was a real privilege to have that kind of, that little bit of knowledge given me early. So I was trying to work it out. And, you know, there's a little bit of manuscript somewhere with me writing as a young kid and not being able to do the circle small enough. And also some of this was recorded. She recorded it on a reel-to-reel thing, which I discovered years later. Oh, oh my God, I remember it. Me singing Bar Bar Black Sheep and things like that, which I will never play anybody else. <laughs> Very embarrassing. But one day after I've been trying to work out how music works, so I sat at the Bon Tempe organ and I got this book out and I managed to play my first piece, which was Home on the Range. But I managed to do it with two hands. And it's the first time I ever remember having a headache because I had to really concentrate. And I sat there for what felt like all day, which was probably half an hour. And mum came down and I shouted, Mum, Mum, I can play it. And sat down and played this thing and she couldn't believe it. And I'd worked it out. And then she calls me dad down. Ron, 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 this time I can play this. He's done it all on his own. <laughs> and I played the thing. I mean, it was probably rubbish, but I mean, it was with both hands. I remember that. And she was really impressed. Aww. So then it was like, we've got to get a piano. We've got to get him some lessons. But what happened was there was an old man up the road called Mr. Garland. And me and mum used to visit him and he had a piano. And mum used to play to him now and again. And he gave us the piano. So when he died, so he died when I was seven. And I still remember him bending down and giving me a Nuttles Minto sweet and he was Canadian as well I've always loved Canada so we wheeled the piano down on its own like wheels I mean flipping it and then it went down the hill clonk 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 my dad my brother and some neighbours and they got it in the house wow. of course I went straight on it and I was trying to play it and uh, it was a real cronk to be honest but and I remember playing all the black notes thinking how nice they sound and then mum taught me chopsticks and things and then says look we've got to get him some lessons because we didn't have any money we were a poor family really my dad was a painter and decorator so dad was quite against them to spend money on this but eventually mum managed to persuade him and I got some lessons off this organist and I used to sit and I'd do that but I was quite an active kid so I really didn't want to practice so I just didn't practice I used to be out playing football being a normal kid running around I was the fastest at school at running and I just wanted to challenge everybody at running that was it you know seven but when it comes to the lesson about 10 minutes before I think oh no I better practice for Mr Haywood his name was and he used to come and go hello Mrs Riley hello Martin just like that and I'd sit down and I'd practice for 10 minutes yeah I can play it now and he'd go oh I can see you practice this this week <laughs> and then every single week my mum would shout out from the kitchen no Mr Haywood he's done no practice at all we're gonna stop his lessons every single week yeah. and then it went on and on and I 
said, all right, I'll practice, I'll practice. And then gradually the music got harder and it wasn't so easy to just sit down and play it. Anyway, it goes on. But after about six months, my mum said, we're going to stop your lesson because you really aren't doing any practice. And my answer was, mum, I can't stop now. I've done six months. Well, that's <laughs> it. You're in it for life, aren't you? If you're not going to stop. So that was it. And I took it a bit more seriously after that because she was going to stop my lesson. But one other little thing, how I got into music. I said to my dad once, this is on a religious note, actually. Mum and dad were confirmed Christian, but they weren't, you know, hardcore Christians or anything to me. I used to be in the boys' brigade at one point and I'd marched the. I defected from the Cub Scouts, joined the BB so that I could be a drummer. I ended up being the lead drummer when I was 10 years old and marching into church once a month. And I think the neighbours must have hated us on a Sunday for that. But <laughs> marching down the street. But anyway, when I was about set, I'd been learning the piano for six weeks. Mum and dad took me to Peterborough and I went to the cathedral. My dad was born in Peterborough and my dad was brought up by a lady who he called his auntie, Auntie Ida. She wasn't really an aunt. She's like a foster mum to him in his first nine years. So he was very keen on me meeting her and she was like my great auntie kind of thing. And she'd heard all about me playing the piano and everything. And I went, have you? And I remember looking at the ceiling of Peterborough Cathedral. You have to look in a mirror on the floor and you see it. And it's an amazing ceiling, unlike any other cathedral. Fantastic cathedral, that is. And she says, well, now we're going to go to my church. And I says, why don't you go to this one? Because it's really big and really nice and it's got a nice ceiling. But we went to this little church and I got met at the door by this vicar. And God, you know, I was like really scared. And the vicar looked down at me and he says, hello, Martin, I've heard all about you. You're playing the piano, aren't you? I went, blimey, how do you know this? And he says, well, your great auntie's told me. And I says, right, OK. Well, I'm only Martin. I mean, I'm not very good. I haven't been playing very long, you know, stuttering my words and everything. And he says, well, I've got the piano in the middle of the hall in the church. So let's go in. You can play as a church. I was like, oh my God, well, I haven't really played much without music. And uh, I mean, I had played a few things, but not what I was supposed to play. But the piece I was supposed to play, I hadn't. But anyway, I went in there and the question I said to my parents was, why didn't you get me christened? Because I felt a bit left out at this point. <laughs> And Dad says, well, you were kind of christened. I says, was I? He says, you remember when you went to the church in Peterborough when you were very little and played the piano for the vicar? I was like, yes. He says, well, I was there, your mum was there, Auntie Ida was there, so that's your witness, that's your mum and dad. There's the vicar, he was stood on the end of the piano, and you managed to remember your piece. I said, I can still remember what it was called. It was called Home, and it was in G, and they just learned F sharp, you know. <laughs> and I played it, managed to remember it somehow. But I was really, really nervous. And apparently there's all these wood carvings around the saints my dad would have been into that and he says that was it you were christened to music and that that was it <laughs> he told me this one was about 21 you know it's like wow that's incredible so i was thrilled to this you know i'm not a um, devout christian or anything really but i am a sort of spiritual person so it kind of connects with all of that side of thing uh, very much so when it comes to writing music so that's sort of i kind of got into it then but junior school we had the head teacher was very into music and i played the piano and all the kids kind of everybody clapped well i thought i like this that's, that makes me feel special so that made me want to practice and there was one kid i still remember his name justin vickery i wonder what happened to him and he was brilliant on the piano he could play the entertainer and he was only 11 and i can't quite remember i think there might have even been the real version which is grade eight you know i mean i never forgot it thinking i want to be as good as him he's brilliant so i kind of got into the piano then and then as a composer i used to just tinkle around and mess around i didn't actually realize that i was a composer at all until about six months before i went to music college i thought well at 11 years old unfortunately mum and dad divorced so i went with my mum and it's a long story it's a sob story to the whole thing really and i went to a senior school 
school, a comprehensive school, which literally is the worst school I've ever been to in my life. And I've visited loads now. And it was shut down just after I finished. But there was no music there at all. And it was quite a rough school on the edge of an area called St. Anne's, which was notorious in Nottingham, where I'm actually from. Now there's big drug problems there. And it was known as the murder capital of England at one point. It really, really rough, you know. And uh, I live with my grandparents in the Meadows, which is another kind of rough area. And uh, Snenton is where I'm from. So that's the other rough area in Nottingham. Anyway, music was my salvation. So I turned to music sort of unconsciously, really. And I really started to practice there because I kind of had to leave the area. So I lost all my friends and I just got a bit more isolated. And I just thought, well, let's learn how this thing goes. And at that point, I started messing around a bit more and making up stuff. I didn't take any of it seriously and I didn't have a tape recorder or anything. So nothing really got recorded. Oh, there might be the odd little thing on a cassette tape somewhere. But I kind of just messed around and I realised that as I was getting more bored with learning what I was supposed to learn, I'd keep just playing this note and then I'd like sort of make things up. And mum would shout from the kitchen as always, you're not playing that note right. You're not getting this bit right. I said, mum, it's all right. I, I know, I know. And I'd sit there. I said, it's my new piece, mum. It's called Reign of the Gladiators or something, you know. <laughs> Banging away on this thing. And you know what's surprising? I was writing some really atonal music as well, which to me sounded quite beautiful. And I'd try and give it evocative titles like Shadows or something. And I'd just sit down and make up stuff. And I wasn't bothered about writing pop songs at all at that point. But I did listen to, I mean, I loved Simon Garfunkel and the Beach Boys. I nicked those two records off my brother. The day I had to leave my family home properly, I nicked these records and played them to death for about five years. Uh, So I know those people in and out, but I still love them today, especially Paul Simon Garfunkel. It's brilliant songwriting. Mm -hmm. So I had all of that going on and then it was the 80s and I sort of, whatever was going on, my favourite group at the time was Tears of Fears, Everybody Wants to Rule the World blah 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 I loved all that stuff but my school really let me down so music education was put on hold and we were very poor then because mum was actually quite sick and she had a bad chest she had emphysema Mm -hmm. and so she couldn't afford to give me piano lessons but I had another piano teacher and he retired and he recommended to me to quite a good piano teacher never had a good one in fact the only time I had a good one was when I got to the conservatoire myself and then I realised I was absolute rubbish on the piano and I had to practice like mad it was a nightmare but anyway I think a lot of people get that when they go to music college yeah Uh, that's up to about 16 the last assembly of school of all time I had about three mates knew that I played the piano and one of them it snitched to the head of year that I played the piano and nobody knew but this guy came to me Mr Bush and he said uh, Martin a little birdie tells me you play the piano I went what and I kept it quiet for all the years there was no music at school anyway and I didn't want anyone to know because I didn't want to get beaten up basically all these <laughs> oh no I just didn't want anyone to know it was my world and I didn't want anybody else to be part of it really apart from my best mates I mean if I'd have gone to a school that had music in it god it would have been just the most fantastic thing but I kept on going anyway it was my salvation and when everybody else was on the school trips they'd be listening to Kajiguga or something I'd be listening to Mendelssohn's Piano Concerto in G minor Schumann's Piano Concerto in A minor and then I'd have my Sarah and Garfunkel tape on the top and say, what are you listening to? Or in the Nottingham accent, what are you listening to? I say, I'm listening to Simon Garfunkel. And they go, oh, what's that? That's crap. You should be listening to da-da-da-da-da. I say, no, it's not. And they go, oh, all right then. Because <laughs> that's the only time I could like get a bit peed off. So uh, I remember that. Anyway, it comes down to the last assembly of school. I get my arm twisted to play and I'm thinking, what am I going to play? So I play Liebstrom by list. Right. Now, I didn't play the full-on proper version of that, which would have been too hard. I played some kind of slightly easier arrangement, but still I could play it, and I played it nicely. But I was thinking, they're going to kill me for this. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Did they hell? The whole 
the whole school was like clapping like mad and they all went mad for it. They didn't know I could play. And I left the school a bit of a hearing. Uh, on a, I realised, oh, man, I could play the piano, that's wicked. In my man, what's this, you know, all kinds of, you know, these big black lads there talking to me. What was that piece called? I said, it's called Liebstromer. It kind of means like a dream of love or love dream, you know. It's like, it goes, man, I like that piece. And, uh, and uh, everybody seemed to like it. And it was like... I couldn't believe it was revelation. So, yeah. so I left that school. Now I was going to then go and study my best subject at school. Well, officially English, I think. But I was also good at sciences and chemistry. And the college next door was awful. And I walked in there thinking to do chemistry, and I didn't want to do it. And the place just didn't have a vibe. I thought, no, God, it's even worse than school. This is. But I was walking around the area where I had to. It was quite away from where I lived. I lived in the centre of town uh, with my mum, and I walked up a road called Mansfield Road, and up there is a college called Clarendon College, and the next just a sign saying music open day I thought I've got to go in there and have a look and I knew that I couldn't tell my parents about this so I went in very working class get a job when you leave school and that's it you don't go to college you don't go to university you do what you're supposed to do was this sixth form college you're talking about so this is a sixth form college further education college and it was a brilliant college of music so I went along to the open day saw all the kids playing trumpets violins and all this stuff singing piano I was like my god I'm not the only kid in the world that does this this is brilliant and I just thought I've got to go here this is where I belong, you know, this is it. Regardless of anything, I didn't think about money, I didn't think about a job, I didn't think about anything, I just thought, I'm going here, that's it. This is what I love. So I went to my mum and I said, no, my mum wasn't in a good way, but I said, mum, I want to do music at Clarendon College, what do you think? Do what you like, that was it. Well, I need a bit more affirmation than that. Now, my dad's side of the family were really working class. My uncle was a coal miner, lots of cousins were coal miners, all of that kind of side of thing. You mentioned you want to do music in a family like that, the answer's going to be no chance. Mm. Uh, but I had to. So I went there on a Saturday and they said, what are you going to do? We've got to think about what you're going to do when you leave school. You've got to get a job now. La, 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 la. The big talk. And I says, no. I says, there's four and a half million unemployed at the moment. This is 1985. Mm. I says, there's no jobs anyway. I might as well get a qualification. So I'm going to get, that was my way around it. Mm. So I'm just going to go and study music at Clarendon College. What? I'm going to go and study music at Clarendon. Well, you know, I play the piano. They never heard me play the piano because uh, really? the piano was at my mum's and uh, yeah, grandma didn't. So uh, I made her a tape and uh, sent it to her and she was in bits eventually. But they oh. said no and I got chucked out of the family. So on that Saturday, I had to walk back to my mum's. It was oh, yeah. time to be at my dad's, but I walked home that day. And uh, it was pretty, pretty tough. That sounds um, really traumatic. Yeah, it was actually. Yeah. So I walked home and uh, I just thought, well, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. It's my life. It's not theirs. Mm. The last thing I want to be is a painter and decorator. Mm. I mean, no disrespect to painter and decorators because I think they're brilliant. And in fact, I used to do some with my dad. But it's like, I want to do this. You know, it's my choice, not nobody else's. So it was the only time that <laughs> mum and dad being split up was in my favour. Mm. And I have an older brother called Ian, 11 years older than me. And I had to have his approval. I had to have someone's proper approval. So I said, Ian, I want to go and do music at Clarendon College. What do you think? Anyway well yeah you might as well if that's what you want to do I was like yeah it's what I want to do he said well do it then I said well mum said yeah but my grandma that said no really more than my dad and uh, she ruled I said grandma says no I said well it doesn't matter it's your life you do it I went yeah that's what I thought so I did and I went to Clarendon College and about six months later I had to learn all the theory and all the things I didn't know anything I'd never done four part harmony really I'd done a tiny bit of theory at the end of my piano lesson but you know you're not going to learn much in five minutes you know when you're running out the door basically so I 
caught up and realised that I could do it. And I was writing music and I remember discovering chords and playing F minor. And I was like, wow, F minor sounds really nice though, doesn't it? And nobody else seems to get it. I said, what, F minor 7? Listen to how lush that is. It's beautiful. And I was playing for a week just playing F minor 7 going, oh, but listen, nobody got it. And then it was F minor 9 and I started learning bits about chords. I'm like, oh man, this is just amazing. And then I'd just go off and I'd write some pieces of music for my mates there. So I remember writing a big piece for the end of my first year there. I had to audition to get in that place. They said no because I hadn't done many grades on the piano. They wanted me to be grade eight really already. But I was officially grade four. But they let me in. Said I got God's gift for music or something. I don't know if that's exactly true. But anyway, I got in and uh, under the proviso that I had to really practice. So I practiced and practiced and did a probationary year where I caught up on things like my maths and English. I did A-level English actually. But I had to catch up on sort of GCSE maths, which I had flunked at school because I wasn't actually taught the syllabus. <laughs> Loads of things. And I did some other stuff. Got caught up with everything. And then I realised I was being saved. There's no question that place saved me no question at all so i felt so lucky to be sat in there with all these kids who had been going to a saturday music school which i didn't even know existed things like this i was like oh nobody told me i would have gone you know or maybe i would have gone don't know if dad would have paid for it i was playing badminton on a saturday that was my job so uh, i loved that and that was the most important part of my education without a doubt was the age of 16 to 19 clarion college under a head teacher called miss caters now died but an amazing head teacher, really old fashioned. She had a few contacts, so we sang. We had to do far extra than what you normally would do. We all had to have our grade eight with a distinction. We all had to have grade eight in music theory by the time we left all of us. You know, that was a requirement. Not a requirement set, but I think a requirement of the college. Mm -hmm. And if you really are going to do this, if you want to go to university and study music, leave. That's the first thing she said. If you want to go to the Royal Academy or another conservatoire, you stay. And I was like, whoa. So actually a couple of people got out and left. That was the very first day. And me and my mates, who I just made friends with, some of them are still friends to this day, I looked at them and we went, bloody hell. <laughs> this is serious. <laughs> So that was the preparation ground. And in those three years, I caught up on everything and realised that four-part harmony and all that was easy to me. I understand it. And I went from probably the bottom of the class. In about a year, I was top of the class. And then I was top of the class for the next two years. It wasn't just me. There were some other really good students. And in that pre-arch year, there were five of us who were like the dunces, if you like, who weren't allowed to join A-level straight away. There was me, there was my friend Richard Cox, a lad called Gordon Croft, another guy called Jarrett Butler, and a lass called... Natalie and Natalie was a clarinetist she went to the Royal Academy of Music on the clarinet she was brilliant Gordon Croft went to the conservatoire changed from a trumpet player into a pianist and became a chief examiner for the ABRSM around the world and Jarrett Butler who was a trombonist he became the principal and still is the principal trombonist of the Lisbon Symphony Orchestra I think yeah. he's still there and, and the other one Richard Cox I had to change his name obviously Dick Cox isn't a great stage name and he's a singer so now he's Richard Coxon and it, it, he sang has a successful career as a tenor and sung with Pavarotti no That's joke good. and I've gone on and I've been a musical director for Blake I've been a teacher at the Conservatoire for nearly 30 years I've worked with some big orchestras I've even been on a number one record with the Charlatans band in 97 uh, I've done a few things I've done nearly what I'm supposed to do so I'm getting my finger out and getting on with what I'm really supposed to do but the five of us looked at each other and we said what do you want to do when you're older I says I don't care what I do as long as it's music I don't care if I'm a pianist professional pianist or I'm a teacher I don't mind but I didn't know that you could be a composer and 
in my head, I thought you had to be dead 400 years. I thought at least 200 years, you had to be dead, you know, literally to be Beethoven. And I can't compare myself to these people. I thought, no. So there's no way I'm a composer. These people are my heroes. And then right towards the end, I'd already auditioned at Royal Academy, Royal College and Guildhall, but I was going to go as a classical pianist. And I'd done my A-level composition, which I had no lessons in. But the teacher, whose name is Doug Wilkie, he's still alive in his 80s and uh, still in touch on Facebook a little bit. He said, Martin, I need you to come to my office at one o'clock. I'm like, right. I thought, what have I done now? Because I've already put my foot in it. And, uh, and he says, right, yes, now I've looked at your composition for your A-level and this guy never gave compliments. I mean, never. And he says, well, begrudgingly, I've had to give it an A. Right? <laughs> I was like, really? Oh, brilliant. I've got an A. Brilliant. And he says, yes, I've had to give it an A and I think you need to have a composition lesson. So come tomorrow at one o'clock. So he's giving up his dinner hour. And I went along the next day and they gave me a composition lesson and it was just brilliant. Kind of was a composer, but he was really into the contemporary side of music and thinking outside the box and not just doing string quartets. We weren't allowed to write a piece for our A-level that was of a normal ensemble. So mine was for three clarinets plus a bass clarinet at the bottom, piano and French horn. Oh, cool. And I called it Reflection from the Other Side. It got recorded for me A-level and then it got performed in my first year in 1989 at the conservatoire where he ended up going because they have a later audition in March and this guy said to me the most important word he said was Mr Wilkie said you must go as a joint first study composer pianist and if they offer you one or the other say you won't accept one or the other you'll only accept both I says really he says trust me you'll get in with two and then you'll get double the lesson so you get more value for your <laughs> ah, so I went along and the piano audition I played as best I could have done really and I played Rachmaninoff's Prelude in G sharp minor as one of the pieces and uh, Malcolm Wilson was the head of piano so he decided he'd make me one of his students so tough it was unbelievable absolutely tough oh my god but then I then had the audition with Andrew your dad and I think probably David Bruce Payne somebody who's very nice but your dad I remember very well and I showed him my reflection from the other side piece I think his reaction was oh that's wonderful I thought, oh, brilliant okay and then we went into a discussion he won't remember this I don't think but it was all about minimalism and he says do you like minimalism so she yeah, I do. He says, I don't. I don't like minimalism at all. Why do you like it? You know, trying to conjecture. Got him. I said, well, I said, I like it because it sort of paints colours in my mind and it goes round and round and round and round and round. I said, but also it's a cross between, you know, classical music and sort of rock and pop music, which has a repetitive rhythm. So I kind of like the fact it's universal. And then your dad was saying, no, 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 I don't agree with that. What do you think, David? Oh, no, I don't agree with that. And I had to keep kind of fighting this argument. It was brilliant. And I kind of said, well, I do like it. I said, and I really like tubular bells, which I did <laughs> as a kid. I played that all the time. Good thing of having an older brother, he had all these records that I could play. If my parents wanted to shut me up as a little kid, they'd stick me in front of the record player. I'd learn how to put the records on, put a record on, put the headphones on and listen. And I would always listen to both sides of the record before I left the seat. It's almost a duty to listen to it, even if I didn't want to. And that would anchor me down because I would be off out running around all the time. I was a live wire. Um, yeah, that audition, Tubular Bells got mentioned. And then we talked about all the composers and I just discovered John Adams and he had just written in short ride in a fast machine which I just thought was incredibly brilliant and I loved it and so I talked about John Adams I said I love John Adams you know a lot of people they say they like this contemporary stuff I don't agree that they do really like it I think they think they have to like it which is what I've been told but I genuinely love this stuff it's brilliant anyway after the audition Andrew said to me well I'm really sorry Martin we can't give you the scholarship because we've just given it to John Webb who was like my arch rival nemesis friend really at the time and I says oh all right okay and they're not supposed to tell you if you've got in or not so I knew I'd got in and I shut the door and I went yeah I've got it and I'm going to go in, I'm going to come here. What an amazing story. 
In April 1989, Martin Riley, as a first-year student, performed the piano part in Andrew Downs' Song of the Prairies, a large-scale cantata setting a poem by William Cullen Bryant for SATB soloists, semi-choir of high voices, full chorus and orchestra. It was commissioned by the Shrewsbury School Sixth Singing Weekend and first performed in the Allington Hall of Shrewsbury School on the 15th of April 1989 by soloists Jacqueline Parker, Sally Birchall, Alfred James, Darren Moore, Cantamus Girls Choir with director Pamela Cook, a massed chorus from all over Britain and Birmingham Conservatoire Symphony Orchestra under the direction of John Rutter. Can you talk about your experiences of performing in The Song of the Prairies? So we are going to Shrewsbury School, Shrewsbury School I would have said then, and that's where it was performed. And when I went to Shrewsbury School I'd never seen a public school before. I thought, God, this is a school. I mean, I just couldn't put two and two together at all. I thought, how can that be fair? My school and this, look at it. Mm -hmm. And when we went there, we're all sat around the big table and that's when your dad said, oh, David went to school like this, what do you think? I says, well, he's lucky. He says, can have whatever you want on the menu and it's got steak on it. I had steak. Right. <laughs> I hardly ever had steak in my life. You know, we had it once a year in my family. Honest to God. <laughs> so I had this steak and I was like filling my boots. It was brand new to me seeing something quite like that. I was like, because I could imagine it with Cambridge and Oxford universities. But a school? Yeah. You know, like, how can that be fair? How can society have this two-tiered thing? And that's when it starts to dawn. That was when it really started to dawn on me how kind of unlucky I was really with school. It's shocking, isn't it? Yeah, but in another way, it kind of made me who I am and it made me strong to achieve. When I was doing music, I was doing it for life and survival. I didn't remember the Song of the Prairies because I was like worried about it because I did actually learn the clarinet when I was at Clarendon College and one of my claims to fame is I got my grade four in six weeks. Ooh. And my clarinet teacher wanted me to be a clarinetist and to forget being a pianist I didn't know I was a composer but of course I didn't but uh, I did like playing the clarinet but my being part of an ensemble well that was brand new to me when I was 16 and so I got put in the big band I have to think about what the notes are you know I was like um okay but the teacher really liked my sound on the clarinet and he got me to stand up and play a solo right and that's another story we won that we won the cup which was great but god almighty I was so 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 nervous then you know I could hardly play it for shaking but when it comes to the song of the parents now I had to do it with the piano well, even when I played in the big band at Clarendon, I didn't play the piano because I wasn't used to reading chord symbols. I had to teach myself to do that, which only occurred to me to do a bit later. So I'm a clarinet player in the big band, not a pianist. So when I get to do something like this, it's like, oh, I've got to play the piano in an orchestra. How do you do that then? Do I follow the conductor? It's been a problem for ages. Pianist, when you play the note, bang, when you hit that note, it comes out. When you're a violinist, he goes, yeah, comes out slightly later, which means you're always ahead of everybody else. Yeah. Well, I remember it in Andrew piece and I thought how am I going to be able to do this you know, once everything's moving I can play along with it but that sort of initial being in there at the beginning oh god that was worrying I then realised after that you look at the lead violinist don't look at the conductor when the leader you can see the leader bang you know then you're alright <laughs> so I remember being quite nervous about that and I thought how am I going to be able to look at this music look at my fingers and look at the conductor all at the same time <laughs> so I remember that and da 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 Something like it's a long time since I've heard that piece of music. I really enjoyed it and it was a great experience. I think it was probably the first time I played in an orchestra setting, which mm -hmm. I've done quite a lot since. Not so much in classical music, but in uh, semi-classical music. 
I've been very fortunate in that way. I've played for some of the stars, but it starts really there. So yeah. that's how important that is as an experience. I don't know how old I was at college. When did he write it? 1989 was the year. No wonder I was bricking myself. I was the first year. Oh my God, in the <laughs> thick of it then. I used to get nervous about things there a little bit. I don't get nervous about anything these days. I don't care. <laughs> It'll be fine. So it's music, you know, it's not brain surgery. Don't worry about it. Do your best. But in those days, you know, it's like, oh God. Oh. So yeah, that was a big step. That was definitely the first piece I played for an orchestra, 100%. And then I was worried that I wouldn't get it right. Whereas when it's my own music, I know I'll get it right. You've got your own responsibility for your own music. When it's someone else's music, you want to do it justice. So the responsibilities are not a little bit different. But it was great because, you know, I was struggling with being a pianist at the Conservatoire. I was struggling to get as good as I wanted to get. I was way behind. But if I'd have been having really good lessons from the age of five, I would have been a different pianist, you know. And by the time you get there, I was catching it all up in like three years before. So it was tough. It was tough. Mm -hmm. And Andrew's piece, Song of the Prairies, gave me the opportunity to like be part of an orchestra, mm -hmm. which was great, you know. Here is an excerpt from Andrew Down's Song of the Prairies. This is a multi-track recording that I have created along with my husband, David Trippett. We are both singing and I am also playing violin and viola. I have mixed this with synthesised sounds to create a promotional track.
This recording can be found at andrewdowns.com where you can also listen to the second performance of this work which was performed in 1991 in the Adrian Bolt Hall, Birmingham by the Birmingham Polytechnic Chorus, the Birmingham Conservatoire Singers and Symphonia conducted by Peter Johnson. You can read more about the premiere and subsequent performances of this work at andrewdowns.com on the blog of Cynthia Downs. So tell me about your time at the Conservatoire. Conservatoire was amazing again. It was amazing, but now we're on another level. But my theory and everything was good. But I almost didn't go to the Conservatoire because my mum was in a bit of an unwell state and uh, kind of knew I'd got in from the audition. But I hadn't had a confirmation letter or anything. And it's now September and I'm thinking, what's going on? And our phone was forever being cut off because we had no money. <laughs> and I couldn't get through. And then one day, David Brock, your dad's partner in crime half the time, he, he said he'd phoned up. And I just thought, God, maybe I haven't gone. I've had no letter, I've had no phone call, I mean, I don't know what's going on. And then my mum said to me, oh, a man called David Brock's called. I said, when was that, mum? When was that? <laughs> oh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. I was like, oh, no, I've missed it. So I phoned them up. I have a little bit of a phobia on phones. I could have phoned up before that, but I really don't like using phones. Still don't like it much. But then I was horrendous for it, especially anything like that. Mm -hmm. So I phoned up and David Brock goes, God, we didn't think he was going to come. I said, I didn't know I'd got in. I hadn't received a letter. I hadn't received anything. Well, I've been trying to blooming phony for about two months or whatever it was. And I was like, oh, right. And it's sort of telling me off. He says, well, yes, you've got a place. We start next week. And I'm like, right, or two weeks time or something. Not long. I had no place to live. The halls of residence were full. I lived too close, apparently. I thought, what do you think I'm going to do? Like commute from Nottingham to Birmingham every day. It's ridiculous. I can't, I can't afford that. I had no money. I mean, no money, right? And I had no money. And I thought, well, I can't do it. And I got really worried about it. And uh, these are the things that go behind the scenes. And so I thought, my parents didn't drive so I had to do it all on my own so I got a train to Birmingham to find somewhere to live I managed to get a list off the Birmingham Polytechnic of places you can live or something and I went in and I phoned them all up and I went around to these different houses on the bus Wow! and it was just a nightmare and I couldn't find anywhere there was one place I nearly found and that fell through other places were already taken and then there was this one place and there was a guy who was the real grand old age of 26 and his partner was this lady who was 40 oh my god <laughs> And he says, well, this place is only for girls. I went, oh, God. I says, and you've got a room free? He went, yeah. I says, I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, I'm supposed to start on Monday and it's like Friday mm -hmm. or something like that. He says, look, she's on holiday at the moment. No mobile phones. See if you can look at the other couple of places. If you can't get in, get back to me. And so I couldn't get anywhere else. I was worn out with it. And I got the train back home. I phoned him up when I got home and I says, I haven't found anywhere. He said, look, it'll be fine. Come here, move in here. Come on Sunday. I went, right, brilliant. So I've got this place and I went along on the Sunday my brother does drive and he took me there a little bit begrudgingly I think but me and dad and they saw me off to this place and I got all my possessions and I was in this little room and I moved in and that was in Sturchley mm -hmm. and uh, it was 25 quid a week all in yeah. which I thought was really quite expensive compared to some places but at least it's nice and comfortable I thought but I had no piano there anyway when, <laughs> when the woman come back she hated men she was so cross with the boyfriend for letting me in she hated me nothing to do with me just she hated blokes and that was it she didn't want another bloke living in her house no. and so it was a nightmare for a year and I kicked on my mate's floor for about six months anyway that was 
credits in the background. It was all right. We made up in the end. Gosh, that sounds but, uh, very difficult. Yeah, it was. I didn't really have any support. You know, like most people have their mums and dads like helping them out and giving them lifts. And I never had a lift off my parents ever. It's a sob story. I used to walk to my piano lessons and that was a two mile walk. I walked there and back every lesson every week. Wow. Yeah, well, I didn't have any bus fare. And it was a weird one because to get a bus into town was a waste of time because it's all downhill and I'll be there in 15 minutes, maybe less. Mm. And then to walk up, I could have got the bus then, but what's the point? Because if I just walked diagonally across and the exercise would do me good and that's the way I thought about it. So I used to... Worrying about the bus not turning up and things like that when you could just be walking. Yeah, just walk it, yeah. The story goes on. I write a book at some point, but I mean, there's far more to it than just this as well. But that kind of believing that you can do things and you will be all right and you've got to be brave, mm. that's all part of it, you know. And I have to remind myself that sometimes if I'm a bit worried about a certain thing. You know, you have to do it. And so it was a big sort of leap of faith and you have to have a leap of faith to get on sometimes. So that's what I did. So I ended up at the conservatoire and I had lessons with your dad and it was just amazing. And I thought I'd better take something to show him. So I wrote some, the choir that I had at Clarion College, I was really fond of singing in that choir. The dedication of the teachers, I'll never forget them, never. They changed my life. So I thought I'll write them. We used to have to do even songs sometimes. So I knew things like about even songs, which I never would have known. So I wrote some praises and responses and I thought, well, they're good. I'll do those because maybe Clarion Choir will sing them for me and then maybe, you know, they're like little harmony exercise and I can use those chords that I like. So I did some chords and all this and your dad loved it. And he goes, oh, this is wonderful, Martin. Wonderful. And uh, so sometimes I think I learn more being a teacher than I do being when I was a student. And that's what he said to me. And I thought, I hope you're not going to nick my chords, Andrew. Uh, but anyway, and he discussed them all and all of this and David Bruce Payne loved them. And there used to be a thing on a Wednesday called uh, Creative Studies for everybody, basically, 20th century workshops. Before the Creative Studies was called that, it was just composition department at the beginning. So they took my responses, photocopied them for everybody in the first year, and we all had to try and sight sing it. Oh, and we wow. all sight sang it, and it was just oh, brilliant. I mean, who does that for you? You know, and that was from your dad and David Bruce Payne. I'll never forget it. And it really meant the world to me, and I could hear it. You see, to me, writing a piece of music on manuscript paper, and we all did everything by pencil. There was no computers. You couldn't listen to it yet to have it right first time. Well, I'm not going to write out something twice. I'm going to get it right first time because I can't be bothered writing things twice. It's such a painstaking thing. So you put maximum thought on every single dot on that page and you don't want it to be wrong. And that's it. You know, if there's a little kind of a space at the end of the stave or something, we'll let that go. But nothing else, not note wise, it's got to be perfect. It has to be perfect. Mozart didn't write mistakes. Beethoven <laughs> did. He wrote loads, <laughs> which is fine. So I used to take real careful pride in what I wrote and really think about it so that it was right, which is a very, very different way of working to what is done today where everybody just tries out stuff and sees if it sounds all right and it's yeah. not the same the way of internal listening to your music it's like when you're composing on a score it's like listening to the music but behind a massive thick pane of glass so you kind of get how it goes and you feel it and you, every nuance every kind of phrase and where a wind player might take a breath and where a bow might change and you kind of imagine every single thing in there and you hear it but you don't feel it in the same way and then when it's going to be performed or it's going to be sung in that case of that, that you know it was amazing to hear that and the, the glass is gone and it's like oh 
and then you can hear it resonances the way it moves around the air how the voices interact how people might be singing it a bit flat or something or someone's messing around but you know it's like all the kind of and then it comes together and it's like oh wow and it's the biggest thrill ever it still is for me if there's an orchestra and you've just done a big piece or you've written something and they're about to play it and you just before they sit down to play it properly people are just whizzing through little bits to make sure they can play them and you hear little snippets of what you've written you go yeah 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 that's it that's it that's it because it sounds clearer than what it was in your head because the glass has been removed it's the only way i can describe it but it really really was like that and is like that still in some ways we sang those and it was just brilliant how did it sound oh it sounded great yeah i mean da 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 and then bang and and the chords were not like because i was kind of shielded in a way from the normality of these things i was quite original mm. so i sort of was teaching myself jazz piano as well at the time and just into harmony i'd put chords in you know bf minor nine or something i can't remember what the chords were now but we kind of i didn't have any limits i wasn't conditioned yeah uh, i just wrote what i wanted to write and your dad gave me the best piece of advice ever because after that first lesson i showed him these things he loved it and he says what else do you do i says oh i don't know whether i should even tell you he says i really like pop music and I really like jazz i said but if i do that stuff no one's going to take me seriously as a classical composer funnily enough but i says what do you think he says martin you should write what you want write what you want don't worry about that i want to hear a pop song next week i want to hear this i want to hear something else i was like right okay brilliant i was so happy <laughs> that that is the best advice any composition teacher can give write what you want don't write what you think you have to write but do expand your horizons always and don't be scared of writing stuff that's atonal and this it has a meaning it has a purpose it has a feeling you know but do write what you want write what you love if you love what you write it's going to be good i loved everything that i was writing i mean some of it i'm scratching my head thinking is this good enough or is this right and what i really remember about andrew is kindness he was such a kind person not just to me but to everybody and genuinely cared that is priceless particularly when you're a kid from nottingham who's got absolutely no idea of anything and i went to him once it was about six weeks i turned up in birmingham with 16 quid and that's all i had and i thought that was quite a lot of money you know 16 pound in my pocket but i didn't actually receive my grant check at all i can't remember how long it's something like six weeks or a month at least a long time so i was i was going down on money and i'd said to the lady i'll pay her when the grant check comes it still hasn't come it still doesn't come and now i'm getting worried so anyway i think your dad kind of knew looked to me i mean i was believe it not slim as anything then and i was skinny i was only 10 and a half stone you know and i'm five foot 10 and a half so i was underweight can't say that anymore and he looked to me and said so how are you martin have you got everything you need and i was like almost embarrassed to say i haven't got my grant check you know that's how i used to be i eventually said well i haven't received my grant yet like, what says you should have had it ages ago you should have had it in the first few days in the first week definitely you should have had that by now so he went straight on the phone phoned up whoever he had to and he says it has to arrive by two o'clock this afternoon and that's it and he really put his foot down spoke to who he needed to then spoke to that person's boss or whatever put the phone down so you'll get the check you'll probably be there by two but it'll be definitely there by two and i thought like, oh, that's amazing andrew thanks a lot and i went down and it was there by two o'clock and i put it in the bank and uh, i managed to eat that day you know Aww. and it was like wow i'll never forget that because i was literally starving and the other thing your dad did oh, this is a beautiful act of kindness in my first year i didn't have a clue about universities music colleges or anything i was the first person to get a degree in our family oh no i've got one cousin who did actually on my dad's side of the family 100 percent. so i got there and it was coming up to christmas in my first term and we were all invited around this is when i met you for the first time we were all invited to your dad's house in hagley and i'm like oh wow so we're getting the train oh brilliant okay. <laughs> it's christmas so we're all getting pissed on the train we're having a few drinks and getting into and we're having a laugh and 
James Cooper and all of the guys, they were so funny, you know, they were a couple of years ahead of me. And we find it and we get there and I'm not quite nervous, you know, it's like, oh God, am I going to see my dreaded <laughs> piano teacher? How am I going to get through this? Oh dear. And everybody else is going to be there, all the members of staff, you know, people that to me are like so posh and exclusive. And your dad just came straight up to me and went, hello Martin. And he <laughs> came and put his arm around me. He says, come on, I'll take you to where the punch is. And we pushed through all of the crowd in his house. To me, not the rest of them, me, to the cooker. Of course, they're all following behind. And we went to the cooker and they had the punch on the cooker. He says, yeah, I'll have some of this. And he gave me a big dollop of this stuff. <laughs> and, I, and I drank it and I was like oh thanks Andrew and it was just that even that was a massive thing because it's like really taking you under his wing really and, I, and he did In January 1989 Andrew Downs travelled to Israel to hear the Israel premiere of his work Sonata for Two Pianos performed by Bracca Aden and Alexander Tamir in the Israel Philharmonic Guesthouse Tel Aviv in a concert with members of the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra celebrating the return to Israel of the refusenik Elena Kaiskuna. Andrew used this opportunity to meet with Joseph Dorman, the director of the Academy of Music at Tel Aviv University. They discussed the setting up of student exchanges between Birmingham Conservatoire and the Tel Aviv Academy of Music. They decided that the best approach would be to run a competition in both institutions to find a group of about five students who would visit each other's countries, give recitals, attend classes and generally form impressions and relationships which would do nothing but good for Anglo-Israeli relations. Martin Riley's group City Links won the first of these competitions which we will be talking about later. Knowing that Andrew was to be travelling to Israel, Martin asked him to get a piece of music called Five Piano Pieces by Paul Benheim. I said, could you find this please? It's called Toccata. Oh, right, there's not many of those, is there? But it's by an Israeli composer called Paul Benheim. And he, he wrote a journal when he was there. He said, I had to spend half a day trying to find this piece of music for Martin Riley. <laughs> I remember, I read his journal. It was really good. And it was in the days we didn't have the internet, so a journal would have just been stuck on the notice board. You'd pick it out and read it and put it back. Really? Yeah, yeah. Would have gone in the library as well, I remember picking it up off the notice board then looking through it and there was this whole half a day and I was like oh my god I've made him do this and he said I had to go to this dodgy music shop down some dodgy back street and I found this piece of music and when I got it I was like yeah so I thought right I'll do that justice I'll do it in my fourth year final so I did. and I memorized it. Andrew writes in his diary Monday I went in search of five piano pieces opus 34 by Paul Benheim which my student Martin Riley asked me to get for him. I had been told to try Gidon Steiner, who sells vast amounts of unusual music from his basement in a side street near the Israel Philharmonic Hall National Theatre Complex. This involved a beautiful walk down the lovely Dizengoff Street, lined with trees and cafes. Unfortunately, Gidon Steiner was not in, so after a Turkish coffee which tasted like sewage, I went to a nearby record shop which advised me to make for Carmel Market and Allenby Street, where I would find the publisher of Paul Benheim. I crossed a vast area of dilapidated market stalls displaying magnificent arrays of exotic fruit and vegetables and anything else you can think of, and held tight onto my wallet. I got to the music and was glad to walk back to the coast through tumble-down streets of bread sellers and goldsmiths. You can read this whole diary by going to the About page on andrewdowns.com. 
One of the things I think that's kind of rubbed off from your dad to me was that I was always as kind as I could be to students as well, no matter what background they're from. And I realised that when I got to music college, nobody else had got there through my route, really. I mean, there was people from Clarendon, but even they weren't from the school I went to. My goodness, nothing comes out of that place. I mean, literally nobody went to university from that school. You know, you're lucky if you could get any O-level, as it would have been. So, you know, I felt really sorry. We were like forgotten kids. Nobody cared about us. And then I get into Clarendon and they take me really seriously. And I get into conservatoire and your dad shows me this amazing kindness, which I'll never, ever forget. I mean, it's so important. I am now going to play Movement 2 from Andrew Down's Sonata for Two Pianos, the work that was performed in Israel. The performers are Duncan Honeybourne and Catherine Lamb, and this recording is on Duncan's CD, Daybreak in the Fields, the piano music of Andrew Downs, for EM Records. Thank you. 
Visit andrewdowns.com to hear more movements from that work, to purchase CD recordings, MP3 and WAV files, to view the score, to purchase the score, either digitally or as a hard copy, and also to read the blog post by Cynthia Downs. So I had lovely composition lessons with your dad and an insight and an encouragement. And I remember writing three songs and they were called The Closest Emotions. And I had my A-level piece performed in my first ever concert. The real thing there is the encouragement that your dad gave and it's priceless. You know, it takes a lot of guts to write a piece of music. And it takes a lot of guts to sing as well. And it takes a lot of guts to sit and do a piano recital of classical music when everybody's looking at you yeah. and you think, oh my God. And the other thing with piano is you're expected to do it all from memory. And if you can't remember it, or if you lose it in the middle, what are you going to do? Well, it's happened to me before. I just make up stuff. <laughs> oh, shit, how does this go? And then I go back to a certain thing. I've had to do it. And it's a, you know, you're living on. But you have to again, you have to do it. Those are all rites of passage, those things. So my composition lessons were going great from day one, and I loved them. But my piano lessons, oh, my God. So that's when I realised, no disrespect to my piano teacher in Nottingham at Clarendon College was a guy called Franz Johnson, who to this day is the most enthusiastic piano teacher in the world and he gave me so much inspiration I mean I was filled up to the brim with inspiration when I went to music college but then I had a teacher who had a keyboard he basically ripped apart absolutely anything I did and I didn't have a single hair of a compliment for all of my first year I mean not at all I was like oh my god you know I'm just rubbish at this it's not always good you need to be encouraged a bit but I wasn't but he just said before my final year first year exam your right hand wasn't bad on that bit <laughs> and I walked out of that classroom going, yes! You know, so I went into my exam, all guns blazing, bang, did all right. Got a 2-1 in my first year. I think the biggest achievement of it all, though, was in my fourth year. When Oh, no, my third, I actually did two degrees in the time of one. Because in those days, you did a BA Honours, which was three years. Mm. And you could do a GBSM, Graduate Birmingham School of Music, which is now the equivalent of a BMOS. They don't have the GBSM anymore. But I did the GBSM. I managed to get an extension to do it in my fourth year from Nottingham Council. Again, I'm sure it's your dad on the phone telling him that he wants me to do this. And I don't know how these things came to me. I really don't. But I know your dad was working things behind sometimes things he'd never say things i still don't know that like how did this happen so i got a grant to continue a degree which is actually probably worth less than my ba honors or it's a professional diploma so it's different isn't it so i managed to get two degrees in the space of one which was very lucky but the biggest achievement really because my composition was flying i managed to get a first for my piano playing in my ba honors and that was a real achievement because that was so hard and then the fourth year i got distinction for all of it and i was literally practicing the piano 10 hours a day i had to Wow. There's lots of things involving your dad. There was a competition that came up at the end of my first year and your dad suggested I go for it. I was like, right, what is it? It's called the Fat Fair for Birmingham competition. Mm. I said, right, 1989, it's the 100-year centenary of Birmingham being a city. Mm. I said, is that all? I said, I'm sure Nottingham's 500 years old, which is. I said, Birmingham's younger than Nottingham. It's all to do with the Industrial Revolution, isn't it? So I was like, wow, okay, yeah, I'll do that. So I entered the competition, not expecting to even get to the final because it was open to all music colleges of any age around the country so we had postgrads from the Royal Academy of Music and everybody entering it and I was just a first year and uh, I won it wow so uh, it was wow because I got 500 <laughs> quid paid me overdraft off and it was great went down the pub and had a good time it was fantastic oh, you know great. and <laughs> it was brilliant and uh, I wrote it over the summer of my first year and then in the October when we went back the first Friday I got awarded the prize and uh, it was awarded by the Lord Mayor and stuff but I didn't realise 
you know, we didn't have mobile phones and stuff. I didn't know what was happening. So I turned up to this thing to pick up my certificate. And I was in ripped jeans and a baggy jumper and like, you know, looked a tramp, basically. And I had to turn up and they're all so posh. I've never met posh people before. And of course, your dad understands this. I'm sure he'd make him laugh. I had to go into like, they had a special room, the Shakespeare room, which used to be lovely at the Conservatoire. This special little room for little results and stuff. And they had this whole like banquet of, I've never even seen prawns like on special things and real salmon and stuff. I was like, God, I'd never had it before. In fact, I didn't even know it was food when I first walked in there. It looked so posh. And I thought, well, what's this? You know, I should have got my tie on and all that lot. Looked like a blooming tramp. <laughs> anyway, it was funny. It was very funny. Anyway, I had a good time and people loved the piece and I really should get that performed again. So if there's any brass quintets who want a piece and it was played then by the Fine Arts Brass Ensemble, who were the best that we knew of. They still remember it because they performed at St. Paul's Church, Hockley, and it broke the guy's trumpet because... <laughs> at one point goes very high at the end and I just said you can hit any of these high notes I don't mind which one it is that's up to you <laughs> and, and, it goes, and he swaps to a piccolo trumpet to the last really high note and as he's playing it his trumpet falls apart right and he's going oh and he's sticking it in and he's still playing it holding his trumpet together honestly never seen anything like it so dramatic and he gets to the last note and still hits the last note and I went these guys are just the business <laughs> So I don't think they'll forget my piece. Here is Martin Riley's Fanfare 100 Years, the winning entry of the National Fanfare for Birmingham competition to celebrate the city's 100-year anniversary in 1989. The work is performed by the Fine Arts Brass Ensemble. Thank you. 
some songs that's right and they're called the closest emotions all about love silence and hate and i was at home at this point with the rotten landlady it was her birthday and she had some cards up and i just had a little nosy at the cards and in one i love poetry my dad was a poet like i said i write poetry as well unpublished at the moment i never actually tried to get it published my dad had a book and there's some things in that of mine but anyway so i picked up this card and i read the poem and it said silence is a rock where i shall stand something between this and the next breath i thought that's excellent i'm gonna nick it so i wrote it out from her card I thought I'm going to use this as the middle song but it was the first one I wrote and so I wrote it and your dad taught me through that song little song cycle so that was the silence so the closest emotions are love and hate in some ways because you have to have the amount of passion for love the amount of passion for hate that actually comes like a big circle and the silence is in the middle and if you think about it you're more on the love side than the hate but I wrote them all in the wrong order the next one I wrote was the hate one and I've got these words from the Duchess of Malfi by John Webster and it's like this woman is you know hell hath no fury like a woman scorned it's that kind of thing ah oh, the words are brilliant she's ripping out the house she's gonna absolutely destroy whatever it's just the strongest thing oh i was just loved it and so i wrote this really powerful bit of music for that and then the first one about love that was the last one i wrote and that didn't take me as long those two took me a while but the last one written by a guy called david rose i think so totally from different time periods these words but it didn't matter what they mean is what matters so anyway, i wrote those you dad helped me with those pieces so that's one of the big things i remember writing when i was with him maybe i should give them to you paula you can sing them yeah um, definitely. soprano the piano part is a bugger the last piece where she's screaming hate oh god it's great we did it and it had like and everybody was shocked you know i really went for it i mean i was going like a mad thing on the piano and we did it and the girl had laryngitis at the time she could only just sing this very high note and she did it uh, but anyway, at the end of that, I walked off. I remember collapsing on the floor because it was a lot and there was so much pressure on me as a pianist as well. And I was a first year and I was really, you know, trying to get good. But it made a difference. And I don't think people ever looked at me quite the same again after that. And that's partly down to your dad's encouragement, you know. But it goes on. I mean, your dad was so helpful. I mean, then there was a competition and we needed to put a group together and see if we could win the prize to go to Israel, to go to the Jerusalem Academy. And I wanted to go. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to go to Israel. I'd love to go anywhere and never been a Broad, you know, I was like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. So I put this group together, and it was myself, a wonderful singer called Sarah Coleman, Sarah Coleman. Mm -hmm. uh, Sarah was two years above me, so to get her in, I listened to her sing "My Lag and Love," which is still one of my favourite folk songs ever written, and she sang with such beauty. Honest to God, I was just like, this is the girl. So I asked, would you be interested in doing this, and we'll see if we can win this prize, we'll send us to Israel, you know, for a bit of a laugh. Yeah, yeah, I'll do that, Martin. Yeah, I'd love to. I'm so glad you asked me. I'm like, oh. Brilliant. Well, gosh, you're a more advanced student than me. And you said, yeah, so that's good. And then the other person I asked was Julian Smith. Oh, I know, who's since come third in Britain's Got Talent and is a saxophone player and done really well. Sarah, by the way, is a teacher at the Conservatoire now and is really well known on the jazz circuit. Mm -hmm. She's a really special singer. A percussionist. So Jules, he was a year above me. And then the others were my year. Kevin Waterman, who's a percussionist, drummer, who now is full-time percussionist for the Royal Shakespeare Company. And Alistair Gurr, Al Gurr, is now, amazingly, back at the Conservatoire teaching in the same department as me after all these years. So Al's more of a jazz pianist. But at the time, he was playing bass 
and R is the pianist. So we got together and I wrote songs. Our philosophy was to take all music. To me, music's music. So we did Baroque stuff at the beginning that I didn't write. And now I was playing it on harpsichord. And Jules was playing his bassoon. <laughs> he was a bassoonist. You know, now he's just a saxophone player. But I kind of told him to do that. Anyway, it goes on. And we put this thing together. Music from 1600 to the present day. So the second half of the concert, which is more present day, was then my music. And we all played it. And it was more on the jazz style of things. Although me and Sarah, Sarah was a classical pianist first study i wrote a piece for two pianos in my second year called transport through the glades and we performed that on two grand pianos oh, and i made a slight mistake in what i wrote because i knew that i was able to play this and play this and play this yeah but it was relentlessly difficult the whole way through so i had to practice like mad to do it and we performed it anyway we went for the competition and we won it so we were going to go off to go to jerusalem but unfortunately and this was like amazing you know this is i think my second year so we were so excited you know i was like right this is it and in my second year i was really getting on it with composition i mean i can't tell you how much i love the subject my favorite thing it still is I mean, it's what i live for simpler music's what i live for so anyway we did that and we win the competition and then kind of war breaks out it all gets dodgy in uh, in israel and we can't go because it's just too dangerous and i said well let's just go anyway it'll be interesting you know a few bombs here and there don't matter but no 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 we're really not allowed to go so we couldn't go so we were so upset it was like oh god he says don't worry martin we'll find somewhere else we can go and i was like all right then but of course we didn't hear anything for six months or we heard something two months later we're trying this but no 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 anyway it was a good while later because we were thinking shall we stick together i hadn't really thought about what career i'm going to do at the end of all this you know it's really daunting but i didn't cross my mind you know thought, what do you do and then we thought well, do we stick together should we keep the band going so we're thinking you know because we've got other things on there's lots of things going on but we did here is city links performing martin riley's crying in the rain recorded at bbc pebble mill in 1991. When I saw you standing there I must admit It was love at first sight And I, I didn't know what to do So I said Oh, 
And then it was, right, David Brock now. We can't go to Israel. Oh, no. Is it, no the situation is just as bad. You can't go. There's a bit of a war going on. Went, right. So we're going to go to New York. And we went, yeah, we go to New York. So wow. called the New York Prize then. <laughs> so we went to New York. And there'd been a student who'd actually been in our class called Laurie Buonamici. She was the only American person I'd ever met in my life. And she was great. And she was in our harmony class. I want to say ours. Me and Al were in the same harmony class. Anyway, we go off to America. So this is now our third year, beginning of the third year. We went there on November the 1st, 1991. The reason I can remember the date is because my birthday is November the 2nd. So I actually had my birthday. I was 22 when I went there. I was 23 when I come back. Mm -hmm. So your dad had put that together and David Brock and they came with us, of course. Well, I mean, blimey. <laughs> <laughs> anything could have gone wrong you know i mean it's like mischief central uh, it was just fantastic we had a great time this last at laurie born amici what's the chances of this so to get to where we were going it was called the potsdam college of the state university of new york and the music department was called the crane school of music i thought we were going to new york city no no we're going to new york state i didn't realize new york state goes all the way up to canada we're right near the canadian border it's out in the wilderness it's just fantastic over the adirondack mountains so we flew in to JFK airport and we could see the Empire State Building in the distance I mean it was so exciting I mean god I can't tell you I mean it's a real place it really exists it's not just in films but we couldn't go there unfortunately which is torture then we had to get another plane and fly up to upstate New York to a place called Syracuse from Syracuse we then got picked up by someone from the college and do a four-hour drive to Potsdam so it was a long long trip yeah. Never forget that plane journey from JFK airport to Syracuse because it was absolutely frightening. It was the bumpiest and it was a little plane, about a 12 seater. Oh, and there was us on there and maybe two other people and that was it. And everybody was so shattered with traveling that they were all asleep and I was awake. Now, I'm not scared of flying. In fact, because I wanted to be an astronaut, I thought I might be a pilot and nearly joined the RAF when I was 16 as well. That's another thing. I didn't. So I'm on this plane and I'm flying over the Adirondack Mountains and we're hitting this like turbulence. Now it's the first time heard a southern american accent like the dukes of hazard guys flying the plane we go yeah uh, i think we're gonna hit some turbulence you might want to hold on to your seats right? and it was like ba -boom, ba -boom, ba -boom, ba -boom. it was so scary i mean literally a drop like 50 feet and then go oh white knuckle riding the whole way there's no way i could be asleep everybody else is asleep there's anything i'm holding on like this and i'm thinking oh my god and when the plane came to land it didn't just land like a normal plane the nose is pointing down the plane. it was like that and then it hit the thing and it bounced up and it went bam bam at which point everybody woke up and I was literally holding on for dear life thinking we're gonna die right and we made it that was really frightening and uh, nobody knew there's only me knows that right I said my god you slept through the roughest ride it's still the roughest ride I've ever been on don't know if your dad remembers it maybe he was just trying to be very calm but I think he's asleep <laughs> yeah anyway we then go across and we get what looked like the bus from Scooby-Doo you know and we jump in that and it takes us off to Potsdam College and we get there and we're all tired and anyway, it was great the next day we're walking into the canteen part and uh, this double door just goes like this and there's Laurie the girl who used to be in our class there she's gone back to America she's no longer a student there she just happened to be there it's like a trillion to one chance 
Oh, wow. She was talking, and that's not even part of the music school. That's like the general college. Oh, it was unbelievable. And she just says, oh, my God, these are my friends from England. And it was like, what? I think it was the next day it was my birthday. And we went the next day. She took us down to this beautiful Angel Falls, it was called, near there. And we went and had a fantastic time. And I fell in the river. Yeah. <laughs> and the first snow of winter was falling on my head. Oh, no. Just somewhere. Someone took a picture of me in the river up to here. And I'm holding the camera up where the film's rewinding. But the camera's still... Uh, <laughs> pictures i took did get developed they worked but it was just like and i was freezing nearly got hypothermia ah oh, but it was so brilliant anyway Unbelievable. we did our concerts here it went down brilliantly you know i'll never forget it one thing i will say about america you know there's a lot of things i don't like about america there's a lot of things i do like and one of the things i love is their enthusiasm for the yes you can mm. you can do it and their kind of belief in you for getting that far you don't get that in britain you no don't you don't get it they will knock you down they will look at you as if you who do you think you are you get that here but in yeah. america if they believe in you they believe in you there are exceptions there your dad's one of those you know but it is a different kind of thing and america taught me that one of the great things i will say and we're all in a pub and it's called max fields i think or max wells yeah yeah i can't repeat any of it it's just far too rude but let's just say we were crying with laughter all of us your dad to me that was like the kind of one of the best times of my life really andrew downs and david brock took martin riley's group city links to Potsdam University, New York, to forge links with the university and create an exchange programme similar to the one that Andrew had been setting up in Israel. Shortly afterwards, Andrew was invited by the Crane Concert Choir of the University of New York to conduct them in the first American performance of his St Luke Passion. The choir has a tradition for inviting composers to conduct their works with them. Composers to be invited in the past have included Samuel Barber and Aaron Copeland. Here is an excerpt from Andrew Downs' A St Luke Passion. This performance was for the 10th anniversary of the Adrian Bolt Hall Birmingham by baritone Brian Rayner Cook with the Birmingham Conservatoire Choir and Orchestra, conducted by Stephen Lloyd in February 1997.
You can find out more about that work and hear the full recording at andrewdowns.com. I think all of us in City Links, as we recall, will remember that. The reason I called it that is because, and it was before City Link couriers as well, I'll tell <laughs> But it was so that we could like connect the world together. Because to me, your dad was really into the world music thing, and so was I, I still am. You know, culturally, music is so vital, it's in every country in the world. Mm -hmm. So I'd listen, we had the gamelan, we had a make-do gamelan, and then we got a proper gamelan, and that came in. Of course, when it came in, so did the scorpions and spiders that have been hiding in there. They had to fumigate the whole <laughs> conservatoire. Yeah, absolutely true. Now, I didn't take them out of the boxes, but my mate did, Mark Balderson. He was a percussionist, and it was their job. And he took it, and he went, Bloody hell, it says there's a great big tarantula in this flipping thing. No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, I didn't expect that. So they had to get rent to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I, I know the story anyway. It was like a flipping egg. But so we was doing that, and your dad was always like, we're interested in other things, not just straight classical music, but everything else. You know, and to me, that's so vital. And so your dad taught me in my first year. My second year, I was taught by John Joubert. Like your daddy was taught by Herbert Howells. But also, he was also directly taught by Vaughan Williams, Ralph Vaughan Williams. And I like that. Because to me, teaching composition, it's a bit of a legacy. You're down the line if you've been in a conservatoire. So <laughs> Herbert Howes was taught by Vaughan Williams. Herbert Howes taught your dad. Herbert Howes taught John Joubert, but so did Vaughan Williams for a little while. So I can say my teacher's teacher was Vaughan Williams, which yeah. is awesome. And I love that. And then in my fourth year, I was then taught by John Mayer. And I kept up my lessons with him for two years. I kept on even once I got, because I just loved being taught by him. Yeah. And, and he was from India and uh, ultimate respect for all three of these people. They gave a lot and they're all quite different you know mm. your dad kind of oversaw all this stuff but when i had john you know we're all friends you know it's like you're not going there to be told off that you haven't done stuff right you're there because they want your music to be great john and i got on very well and he tragically died of, uh, of being hit by a car in london yeah. he banged his head on the curb if you ever saw john it's not so he could have died years before i mean he was so clumsy <laughs> all these big glasses to walk around like you know he didn't know what was going on he's just he's nobody like him you know absolutely brilliant guy i was writing a violin 
violin concerto with him towards the end and he was a violinist and he played in the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, the first non-white ever, I think, in an orchestra in Europe, not just UK. He was a groundbreaker. I come from Calcutta. I kind of could assimilate myself a little bit with him and my background. Went to a convent school and they gave him a violin and then he learned as his way out. A bit like me in some ways, but he was a brilliant inspiration. Absolutely brilliant inspiration. I loved John Mayer and he was really, really kind of enthusiastic about my violin concerto. I used to get the concerto, put it on the piano, go, oh, the concerto like this. Unfortunately, the concerto is still not finished. It's concerto for violin and orchestra. And uh, towards that part of my tuition, my mother died mm. and I couldn't write another note of that concerto. Yeah. And what you realise is, and it's taken me a long time, is what's kind of hindered my progress in a way, is that like a child, when you're at school, you drew your picture, you write your poem, you give it your mum or your dad. So there you go. It kind of lasts through your life so you do these things and it's not just wanting approval but it's because you love them but you do want approval I should think a psychologist to tell you that so I realised I just couldn't write another note and it actually devastated me for a good while well, I'm and, sorry uh, yeah it was a difficult time yeah it was I was 25 then so I just started teaching at the conservatoire so I started teaching straight after at the conservatoire straight after graduating and it just felt what but your dad was always there and the clever thing your dad did as well which I look back I didn't realise at the time but the first student I ever taught which was kind of unofficial i taught keyboard to computers were still developing music technology was developing and we had keyboards at college and i was interested in synthetic sounds as well as you know piano and all of that so i know how to work him and this girl called tatiana hopkins who was about 40 years old and i was like loads older than me i thought oh my god you know anyway andrew says martin yes just teach her in my room it's fine you don't need to book a room i'll just be in the corner doing some marking and stuff i thought oh no he's going to be listening to me no oh, this is really embarrassing so all right then andrew so I'd sit in there and I'd teach it. And so for nine months, he was there every week listening to how I taught. And I always think that was probably a clever little move on him just to see what I was like as a teacher and whether I could do it. Oh, interesting. But it didn't cross my mind at the time. I just thought, well, the rooms were very scared. It was hard to get rooms in the old building. That nightmare, in fact. So it did me a favour. But then he was watching. And then the following year, it was David Brock, who was the director of studies, then said to me, literally said this, in my office, one o'clock. Well, I've heard this before. I did my A-level composition. In my office, one o'clock, I've heard you're a bit of a prat. That's what he said. It's typical David Brock, right? That's his well, I miss him. <laughs> yeah. I went, oh, I thought, oh no, what have I done now? Have I done something wrong? You know, I put my foot in it. Sure I haven't. What? So I ended up going to his office. And he says, sit down, sit down. Look, you're a bit of a prat, aren't you? <laughs> I says, what have I done now, David? And actually, no, I'm not. But what makes you say that? He says, well, look, we've got these hours for you to teach. I said, sorry? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. So they offered me to teach some composition. And then John Mayer gave me his orchestration lecture. He says, you know it as well as I do. You do it. That's great. Which was amazing because that's his money, that is, because he's a tutor like I am. So that was amazing. And then I taught orchestration, which I loved. And then David Saint gave me his class. saying, no, you teach it, Martin. You know far more about this stuff than I do. I'll never forget that as well. I mean, how kind is that? I was only 23. That's so great. I was given a few things and I did those lectures for 13 years. The uh, ICA, as it became yeah. called, Improvisation, Composition, Harmony and Oral, which then later became Musicianship. And I taught that. And I've still got students to this day who reminisce about my ICA lessons or my musicianship lessons and how much they loved them. It was really great. It wasn't always easy, but it was good. So I did that for, uh, yeah, 13 years and it went on. So in some ways I was kind of given the job at the conservatoire. I don't know what I would have done without it. You know, I didn't really have a career mind. I didn't think about money or anything. I just thought about doing music and writing tunes and writing music and playing 
singing and to being a pianist as well. And yeah, I was sort of very, very grateful for that. I still am. I, mean, I still teach there. Don't do musicianship anymore. But one other little thing that happened that I'm sure your dad will remember. In my fourth year, my best pal at college was a lad called Steve Reeve, who was from a similar background to mine, only from Bradford. He and I ended up getting a job to write some music for orchestra, but it's for the Moscow Symphony Orchestra. And it was composing the music of Deep Purple, so arranging it. Wow. Oh, this is just amazing. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. But it meant we had to go to Moscow. <laughs> so I'd never been anywhere up to the age of about 23. I'd never been on a plane before. I've done the America thing. And then a little bit later, I'm being sent to Russia uh, in 1992. So it just become Russia again after the Soviet Union. And it was just the most incredible experience of all of my student days, that one. I mean, the America one was incredible as a student, but this was stepping into the real professional world. Mm -hmm. And so for that, and also the changing of Russia, it was based in the 1950s. It was still virtually communist. The inflation rate was like 5,000%. They were paid day by day in the wages. What wages you earned on a Monday were worthless by the Tuesday. Oh, God. And the wages were all going up. I mean, it was unbelievable. They were trying to catch up with the West. So prices of bread, you know, things are like 1950s prices. But people were starving to death. But we had to write this music and it was all by hand. And I had not arranged rock music before. So the pair of us sat in my room in Hockley in this dump of a flat that was rat ridden, honestly. And we wrote this music and composed it by hand. Oh, God, we had no idea how much work it was going to be. And we had little time to do the whole thing. And so I had to work 20 hours a day. And uh -oh. Steve did as well. 20 hours a day, writing it all by hand. And I realised that if I didn't write for the full orchestra the whole time, I could get through it a bit quicker. <laughs> there was one of them. It was one of the most effective bits I wrote, actually. It was a, a track called Lazy. You're lazy, you can't get up here. <laughs> Deep Purple. Uh, famous track if you're a Deep Purple fan it starts off with John Lord on the organ uh, John Lord's great uh, Hammond organ player so I was listening to that I thought this is wicked like, how am I going to transfer that into an orchestra and I just thought well just two clarinets and the flute will do it because the settings on the organ are a little bit like that so I wrote this thing and I was imagining it because the idea I thought well if I've got a full symphony orchestra there I'm going to write some of stuff like introductions and stuff that's purely mine and nothing to do with Deep Purple so I've got some recorded orchestral stuff which I thought was quite clever on my part and on the lazy introduction I used a bit of John Lord and then I went into my own thing and developed this whole thing which arrangers won't do these days they're just like they do it colouring the notes in basically of what's there but I didn't I wrote quite a bit of original things in it but it was quick because I just did it in one go because it was just three lines I had to write so it was a bit easier but that's a good lesson because you know less is more often I'm sure your dad would have said that to me at some point <laughs> but it really is you know here is the intro to Lazy arranged and conducted by Martin Riley performed by the Moscow Symphony Orchestra in 1992.
anyway, so that was a massive thing and uh, in 1992. So I got back, now it's coming up to my second lot of finals for the, my GBSM. And I haven't had time to practice the piano. I literally haven't had time to touch it. And I've got to learn a Beethoven sonata, Lille Joyeuse by Debussy, which is one of my favourite piano pieces of all time. So what was I going to do? So I had to practice 10 hours a day after doing all that 20 hour a day stuff. I was absolutely mentally burnt out. But I thought, well, I've got to do it. I've got to, I'm going to fail it. You know, I can't not turn up. I'm not going to pass unless it's good. Oh, flipping heck. So I'm in it again. Fortunately for me, all the lights were being replaced in the recital hall. And that was a room that you couldn't book and it was out of bounds. So I sneaked in and I said to the workman, do you mind if I kind of just work, how long are you going to be? He said, oh, two weeks at least. I said, that's brilliant. It's two weeks to my exam. I've got two weeks to learn all this music. That's all. And most people have spent all year doing that. So I thought, right, I had learned a bit before that job come in, but then I just didn't have a chance, you know. So then I started practicing. And so I practiced in there and that's where my exam was. So I had the piano and everything. So I learned and I did 10 hours a day, which is the most I possibly could have done. I did get the distinction in the end and I did learn it. But by the end of it, I just thought I cannot practice the piano like that ever again. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to be a classical performer. I'm not going to be a recitalist. Not in this way. I can do things I've written. I can play other things, but not in this kind of let's learn Chopin, perform all the etudes and all that. Nah, it's not going to happen. So uh, the classical grounding in my piano playing was just very useful. I mean, I've done a lot of session work as a performer. And the good thing is being able to pick up things quickly by ear. And so if I'm in the recording studio, I can sit down and go, all right, you want it like this? Or do you want it like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've had a bit of that over the years. It was all setting me up to be a good musician in the end. Yeah. I think we have to have these trials and your dad has been fundamental to my music education no question oh. and, um, I'll never forget those things would happen I was offered a job as a head of music pretty much how did that happen I don't know and uh, someone's phoned up the conservatory can you recommend anybody I'd get recommended I can't be a head of music I'm, I was 22 at the time and I wasn't a teacher there I was still a student oh Martin you better phone up and it was just people who can help me out I don't know there's lots of acts of kindness and I remember all of them there were some great unsung heroes at the conservatoire I mean Andrew Downs is one. He's done so much for people, and I'm sure you could pick any of the composers out, like James Cooper, Richard Lee. He was there for them, doing their things. You know, Will Joss, oh, God bless him, he's died, unfortunately, one of my heroes. And those, you know, Frank Harrington, names I remember. Of course, then there's Urslot, and there's John Webb, and Simon Gray, and others. And it goes on, you know, and then the legacy goes on, and on, and on, and on, and on, and it does, and everybody remembers. There's only one Andrew Downs. I mean, there's nobody else like your dad. I mean, they're literally... There's nobody else like him. He was just the most wonderful man, and is. And it was so great to see that he's still doing it, regardless of all the pains and struggles he's had to go through. It makes mine look like nothing compared to that. Nothing. Yeah? Yeah. And yet still turning out the music. Your dad's one of the big legacies for all of us composers was the openness to sound, the openness to write what you want and what you feel. You can write tonal music if you want to. You can write atonal music if you want to. You just write what you want to write, but write it with truth. I learned that off your dad, and I passed that on. So all the students and I. I've had many, many students now. They've all got that and that kind of shared belief in something. You give it your best. Me and your brilliant dad have kept in contact all these years. I'm very grateful to all that he's given me. And I mean, far more than he realises. Those acts of kindness were just everyday things for your dad. And that's what makes him different. That makes him very, very precious. All of us, and I think I can speak on behalf of all of us in my time as a student. And I then became a member of staff straight after. So I had him in both capacities exactly the same person you know very passionate we were all a bit cheeky really as composers but we had ultimate respect for each other there was only ever friendly rivalry you know everybody wanted everybody to do well and in my career which is 
gone on quite a lot, you know. Those kind of experiences you get at music college are the things that kind of your building blocks, you know. And your dad's faith in me was the other thing. I mean, he obviously had a lot of faith in me to give me these opportunities. It's been absolutely fascinating. And I just wanted to say that my dad has always talked about you with great fondness. And, and I saw your City Links in a pub somewhere. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah, you were amazing. Absolutely. That was a brilliant evening. I remember oh, it very well. That's magic. Yeah. For me, that whole era was golden really coming into the conservatoire seeing concerts meeting my dad's students it was all so exciting <laughs> yeah it was it was it was and it was a golden time it was definitely a golden time for me and all of us remember with the fondest memories you'd had i mean your dad's just awesome oh. you know? yeah really really i mean it's not like your average teacher or your average good teacher i mean it's what it's beyond that you know we all try to do him proud and do ourselves proud and sort of learn and no, he's very, very proud of you. The building up of the department as well seemed to happen then. Mm-hmm. You know, jazz was being taken seriously. So no jazz department then. So I was learning jazz and we'd perform it and Sarah could sing it brilliantly, you know. I mean, really, really top. And so we did it all. And I think, I'd like to think that we kind of, as students, we, and that's Andrew's vision is the inclusivity of every kind of music, world music, the lot. Mm. And that still lives on today. We've still got the folk ensemble, which is still done by Joe Broughton. I talk to people like Fred Baker, you know, I love Fred Baker. He's still teaching there. We often talk about your dad and we talk about the impact that he made and that we want to keep that flame going because we remember what it was like. Mm. And to me, it has changed a bit there. And I would very, very much like to make it more inclusive. And when Julian Lloyd Webber was there, he was very into it as well. Unfortunately, he's now left after five years, but he was very much for that. Yeah, your dad is one of a kind. I think I can speak for everybody, all the students that I knew at my time as being a student. And then the students following me, I had students such as Louis Clark and Gaz Jones was taught by Andrew for a bit. They were like partners in crime, him and Gaz. Uh, Still very much in touch with Louis Clark and Gaz a bit. They're all the same. We're all the same. Had the same thing. And a real love for the subject, real love for music and a real love for your dad. All of us. And it goes on down the line. You know, obviously he had to take early retirement. But Andrew, make sure you keep writing music. We all love it, you know. Oh, gosh, you know, he does. He writes every day. (laughs) Makes me feel guilty. I know. (laughs) My time for writing music is usually between nine at night and three in the morning. But I often think as I've woke up, God, Andrew's done three hours composing. (laughs) Your dad's so prolific. Well, thank you so much. This has been absolutely amazing. So interesting to hear. It's been so nice to talk to you. And thank you so much. That's all right, Paul. To end this podcast, I'm going to play you Movement One from Andrew Down's Centenary Fire Dances, performed by the Birmingham Conservatoire Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Jonathan Del Mar. Thank you. 